Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for being here with us this morning. Now, after three Sundays in the book of Exodus, we finally get to the part of the story that most people, for better or for worse, think of first. And that is, of course, the plagues. Now, at first glance, this part of the story seems pretty simple. God rains down miraculous signs, wonders, and judgment on the bad guys, the hard-hearted Pharaoh and the powerful Egyptians, in order to free the good guys, his chosen servant Moses, and the poor, oppressed Israelites. But when you look closer, the events of these chapters, Exodus 7 through 10, the plagues, and perhaps especially Pharaoh's hard-heartedness, present us with some challenging theological questions. Questions such as, what is God like? And why does God do things the way he does them? And how should we respond to God's answers to these questions in his word? We'll attempt to answer those questions starting in Exodus 7, verse 1. So feel free to open your Bibles there. Feel free to use the Bibles here if you didn't bring one and take one home if you don't own one. Now, we're not going to read every single verse of the plagues of Exodus. The text is just too long for us to accomplish that in one sermon. But if you open up, you can follow along with your finger as we summarize each passage. And then on top of that, we're only going to cover the first nine plagues. There are ten plagues total, but we'll save the final plague for next week. And then at the end, we're going to discuss the highlights and the themes of each of these chapters and bring everything together in an attempt to understand what this part of the story tells us about God. So with that, let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the opportunity to learn about you. Again, we take it for granted, but it's such a privilege that we get to open the Bible that we have freely available to us and learn about you. We don't have to guess about you. We don't have to speculate about you. We don't have to come up with all sorts of crazy off-the-wall theories trying to figure you out. But rather, you've revealed yourself to us in your word. You offer yourself to us in your word that we might know you, that we might understand you. And Father, I pray that we would make a little progress this morning in our knowledge and understanding of who you are. We thank you for your word to teach us. We thank you for your spirit to guide us and inspire us and bring us into truth. And Father, of course, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who brings us together. It's the message of the gospel, the message of your grace, the message of your kindness to sinners that gives us that hunger, that longing, that desire to know you better. Because when we see the cross, how can we not want to know you better? And so, Father, be with us today as we read your word to learn more about you. Thank you for these people and this place, this time we have to praise you, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we will begin by reading Exodus 7, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. 
You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, the people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Now, we've heard this story before, haven't we? But it's a good reminder for those of us who have been here the past few weeks of what we're reading. And it's a good way to catch up for those people who weren't here the past few Sundays. So Moses and his brother Aaron are to confront Pharaoh again. Moses will speak to God. Moses will then speak to Aaron. Aaron will then speak to Pharaoh. And together they will tell Pharaoh to let the enslaved Israelites go out of Egypt. The hard-hearted Pharaoh will refuse, and God will then act. Now, last week, we saw just how hard-hearted Pharaoh really is in his first meeting with Moses and Aaron. He scoffed at Moses and Aaron. He scoffed at God. And instead of letting the Israelites go, Pharaoh ruthlessly increased their misery. This hard-hearted Pharaoh is following in the footsteps of the Pharaohs before him, including the one who attempted to exterminate Hebrew baby boys like Moses some 80 years earlier. There's absolutely no indication whatsoever that Pharaoh is ever going to give in and obey God's commands. In fact, God has said the exact opposite. But Moses and Aaron still have a job to do. So they pay Pharaoh another visit. They give him the message again, not really expecting anything to go any differently. But this visit is a little bit different from the first one, because Pharaoh doesn't just shoo them away like a nuisance. He asks for a sign, and Aaron performs it. He throws down the staff, and the staff becomes a snake. But the sad truth is that Pharaoh didn't really want a sign that Moses and Aaron are legitimate messengers from God. He didn't really want that to be proved to him. That's why he instantly works to discredit the sign. He calls his own magicians, his own wise men, his own sorcerers, and somehow they manage to do the same thing. 
And naturally, this only serves to harden Pharaoh's heart all the more, just as God said it would. So yet again, Pharaoh sends Moses and Aaron on their way. But not before Aaron's snake eat the Egyptian snakes. We'll come back to that later and why it's important. Now, as we mentioned last week, none of this comes as a surprise to God. And none of it surprises Moses and Aaron either at this point. God has specifically told them multiple times that Pharaoh's heart will be hardened and he will refuse to obey. And now Pharaoh has proven God's words to be true multiple times. He's even had a miraculous, ominous sign presented before his very eyes. And yet he still won't let the Israelites go. And so this is where God's mighty hand in the book of Exodus is truly seen. This is where he flexes his muscle by sending these supernatural plagues. Plagues that make a burning bush or a staff turning into a snake look pretty boring. Now the word plague can also be translated as blow. And the plagues that God sends on Egypt strike multiple catastrophic blows on their nation and their people. Plague number one starts in chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. That's when the water of the Nile River is turned to blood. Now, the Nile River was the heartbeat of Egypt. They relied on its water for everything. From food, to travel, to trade, to hygiene, just to name a few. Egyptians even went so far as revering the Nile River as a god. So when the Nile River and even the surrounding bodies of water that it feeds are corrupted, that would have been devastating to Egypt economically, ecologically, psychologically, and in terms of everyday life. The Nile becomes undrinkable blood. All the fish swimming in it die. But the magicians somehow replicate the sign to Pharaoh's satisfaction, and his heart is hardened. Now, there have been lots of attempts to explain this phenomenon, the Nile River turning into blood, through natural occurrences. Some propose that red clay washed down from Ethiopia. Or red plankton infested the waters. And you know, God could certainly use those means if he so desired. He could have done it that way. And maybe he did. But those explanations just don't seem to do this miracle justice in the way that scripture describes it. From there, you see plagues 2 and 3, chapter 8, verses 1 through 19, involving frogs and gnats. You know, there's a sort of logical progression to many of these plagues. I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense that after the Nile is turned to blood, then frogs, who, unlike fish, are able to escape the water, would then jump onto the land. But Pharaoh's magicians somehow accomplish the same feat. But this time, Pharaoh actually does start to show some signs of response to God. He tells Moses and Aaron that if the frogs go away, he will allow the Israelites to worship. But then when the frogs die, Pharaoh's heart is hardened again. 
And when you have countless dead fish and countless dead frogs lying around, it's no surprise that bugs would start to appear as well. So along come the gnats. And the gnats stump the Egyptians. The magicians warn Pharaoh to recognize who he's dealing with. They tell him that this plague is undeniably the finger of God. But Pharaoh doesn't budge, as the Lord had said. Chapter 8, verses 20 through 32 shows us plague number 4, and that is the infestation of flies. Now what makes this plague so interesting is that it's the first targeted plague of the book of Exodus. It affects the Egyptians, but not the Israelites living in the land of Goshen. So how can Pharaoh possibly explain that away? That the flies would only strike the Egyptians and not bother the Israelites at all. So Pharaoh shows some humility. He shows some obedience. But he offers it with a catch. He offers to let the Israelites make their sacrifices to God as they requested, but they have to stay in Egypt to do it. And then when Moses refuses that offer, Pharaoh tries to limit how far the Israelites can go outside of Egypt. Pharaoh seems to think that he is God's equal. He seems to think that he can somehow approach the negotiating table with God and come to an agreement. But that's not how it works. The plague does eventually come to an end. And once again, Pharaoh turns back on his word and hardens his heart even more. Then you get to chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Plagues 5 and 6 involving dead livestock and sick people. Once again, God targets this plague specifically on Egypt, but not the Israelites. Egyptian horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks all die. God even sets a specific time frame on this plague. So Pharaoh cannot possibly believe it's just a coincidence. And in addition to the dead livestock, the Egyptians themselves are afflicted with horrible boils on their skin. The magicians are in too much pain to even attempt to replicate the plague themselves. But yet again, Pharaoh is Pharaoh. Pharaoh is unmoved. Plague number seven is hail in Exodus 9, 13 through 35. Hailstorms are not common in Egypt. They don't happen very often. In the insurance business, things like this may be referred to as an act of God. And this one certainly meets that criteria. But God does graciously give Pharaoh and the Egyptians a warning. He gives them the timing of the plague and suggests that they bring what's left of their livestock under safe cover. The Israelites in Goshen, of course, have no reason to worry. The hailstorm conveniently misses them. Must have been a cold front or a high pressure system, something like that. And once again, Pharaoh offers some temporary repentance. But as soon as God removes Egypt's suffering, his heart hardens all the more. Just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Finally, we see plagues 8 and 9 in chapter 10, verses 1 through 29. An infestation of locusts and three days of darkness. 
The locusts eat whatever is left of the Egyptians' crops after the hailstorm. It's so bad that Pharaoh's own servants are begging him to let the Israelites go. Pharaoh, take your loss. Let them go. Move on. Look what you're doing to us. Darkness descends for three days straight. But once again, Pharaoh tries to put conditions on his obedience to God. He tries to let Israelite adults go, but keep their children. That way he still has a labor force in the future. He tries to let everyone go, but then keep their livestock. Even after seeing God's mighty hand at work through the plagues, time and time and time and time again, Pharaoh still hasn't learned that he is in no position to negotiate with God. He is not God's equal. He cannot approach the table and even try to put some sort of conditions on God. And yet again, whatever repentance Pharaoh offers is short-lived. The Lord has clearly hardened Pharaoh's heart, just as he said he would. And this time, Pharaoh insists that the next time he sees Moses' face, Moses will die. Now, that's certainly a lot to take in, isn't it? There are a few better examples in all of Scripture of God's sheer power and his overwhelming judgment. But if you approach the Bible as simply an interesting collection of ancient stories, the chapters that we just summarized might fascinate you, but they probably won't trouble you very much. You can read them, be entertained by them for a few minutes, might make a good Disney movie, but then you can put the book down and go back to regular life as you know it. But if you approach the Bible as God's authoritative record, of his deeds in the past, present, and future. If you approach scripture as God's inspired revelation of his character and his desires, you may find these chapters challenging. So going back to the questions we asked earlier, what do these passages tell us about God? And what about that question? Why does God do things the way he does them in this story? And of course, how should we respond to all of it? Let's start with question number one. What do these passages tell us about God? Well, first, as we mentioned a moment ago, they tell us about the raw, supreme, absolutely unmatched power of God. The one who created everything we see simply by speaking still exercises his authority over his creation. He exercises power over the waters, over animals, over illness and death, over storms, the sun, the moon, and the stars. His power is obvious in the book of Exodus, maybe even more obvious and more explicit than any other part of Scripture. Now let me ask you this. Do you really believe that about God? I mean, be honest. Do you really believe that God is that powerful? Because I doubt that you've ever seen anything as miraculous or awe-inspiring as the plagues we just read about. But that doesn't change the fact that the God you're here worshiping this morning, right here, right now, 
is the same God we just read about in Exodus. And he still has the power to do those same things. If you really think about God's power like this, if you really think that this is the God that you worship, how does that change your prayer? How does that change your Bible reading? How does that change your faith when things seem to be stacked up against you? Do you really believe that the God you worship, the God who has called you, the God who has loved you, the God who has saved you, the God who has forgiven you, do you really believe that he has this kind of power? And if so, how does that change the way you think about him? How does that change the way you talk about him? How does that change the way you approach him? The book of Exodus shows us the raw, supreme, absolutely unmatched power of God. Something that we Christians cannot afford to forget. But in addition to the power of God, these passages also tell us something about the exclusivity of God. The uniqueness of God. It reminds us that there is no other God besides him. Remember earlier in the passage when Aaron's snake ate the Egyptian snakes. Snakes were a symbol of power in Egypt. To see that, look no further than King Tut's headdress. We have it on the screen behind me. And if you look closely, you'll see two little animals on the top of King Tut's head. And they're both snakes. Snakes represented power and authority in Egypt. And yet Aaron's snake eats the Egyptian snakes. The point is that Egypt's so-called gods, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 8, are resoundingly defeated by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the Hebrews. The God of Moses. The God that we worship to this very day. Pharaoh himself was believed to be a god in Egypt. People thought Pharaoh was divine. But the plagues leave no confusion whatsoever about who is actually worthy of fear, awe, worship, and obedience in the story of Exodus. And it's not Pharaoh. The false gods the Egyptians worship, the god of the Nile River, for example, the god of fertility who was represented by frogs, the god of bulls, the god of rams, the god of the sun. The Egyptians had God for all of these things. Well, the one true God laughs at every single one of them in the plagues in Exodus. He makes sport of every single one of them. They stand no chance against him, and they are exposed as frauds. He uses them to show his unmatched power. And he uses them to show the Egyptians and the Israelites and Pharaoh and Moses and you and me that there is no other God besides him. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we learn a lot about God in these chapters. 
But why does God do things the way he does them in Exodus? That's question number two. Easily the biggest part of the story that might lead us to ask that question. Why does God do things this way? Is that repeated hardening of Pharaoh's heart that we see time and time and time again. The chapters we just worked through speak of Pharaoh's heart in different ways at different times. Sometimes it sounds like God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it sounds like Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. And other times it's just a statement of fact. And it doesn't really tell us who did it explicitly. But based on what we read a few weeks ago in Exodus 4.21, which we have on the screen behind me, I don't think we can get around the fact that God is the orchestrator of everything in the Exodus, including Pharaoh's heart. Before Moses ever even went back to Egypt, God's work had already begun. Pharaoh's heart was being hardened. As we read later in the Old Testament, Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. If you've ever held water in your hands, you know that the water is pretty powerless. You can do with it what you want. And God does with Pharaoh what he wants. He turns Pharaoh's heart. He turns Pharaoh's will wherever he wills it to go. Now the question is then, why does God do all this to Pharaoh? Why the plagues? Why Pharaoh's heart so hardened? Well, at first the answer seems like a no-brainer. God does this stuff to save the Israelites. They cried out to him. They needed salvation. He's going to deliver them, so he sends the plagues. But in each of the chapters that we summarize today, we see another answer to that question. A bigger question. Excuse me, a bigger answer. A deeper answer. We see that God hardens Pharaoh's heart for his own glory and his own fame. We see it in chapter 17 of verse 7. God says, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Talking about the first plague. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Further on, chapter 8, verse 22. We see there. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies will be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. God says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, Pharaoh, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me. In all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 God says to Moses, Go into Pharaoh. For I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, 
that you may know that I am the Lord. God sends the plagues to Egypt. God hardens Pharaoh's heart to free his people, to free the Israelites. But there's also something more. He wants Moses, he wants Pharaoh, he wants the Egyptians, he wants the Israelites, he wants the surrounding nations who will hear about the most powerful empire in the world being crushed in the Red Sea here in just a couple chapters. He wants everyone to know exactly who did this. He wants everyone to know just how powerful he really is. He wants everyone to know that there really is not a single God beside him. His power is unmatched. He cannot be compared to by any other false idol that the world wants to come up with. God sends the plague. God hardens Pharaoh's heart to show his power, to proclaim his name, to make his glory known to creation. Undeniably, God's power, God's uniqueness, you simply cannot get around them in the Exodus. And when you see what he has done, how could anyone possibly deny that he alone is God? Now, of course, the question always comes up with the plagues and with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Is it right for God to do this? Is it just? Is it fair? We often feel kind of bad for Pharaoh, which is ironic given the image that we've been presented in the Exodus about him. We often think of Pharaoh when we run into that theological tension of God's sovereignty over history and our responsibility for our actions. But here's the unpopular answer that I think, nevertheless, is the biblical answer. The truth is that God does what God wants, and what God does is good. And the hard truth is that in the same way that Pharaoh was in no position to negotiate with God, in the big scheme of things, we are in no position to evaluate, judge, or criticize God's actions by our standards. Pharaoh was a nobody compared to God. He had no business approaching God and trying to put conditions on his obedience. And in the same way, we have no business approaching God and demanding answers for why he has done things the way he's done them. We often have those questions. And thankfully, God is incredibly patient and kind with us as we ask those questions. But in the big scheme of things... We are not in a position to judge him by our standards. And while that answer may be difficult to swallow, we followers of Christ remember that we are called to worship God as he presents himself to us in his word. We worship God for who he really is, not for who we wish he was, not for who we think he ought to be, not as the God who, if we're being totally honest, might do things a little bit differently if we could have our say. We worship God for who he is, not who we want or think or wish he would be instead. Paul runs into this question in Romans chapter 9, which we read back over the summer. It's a question that talks about big theological ideas, 
the fate of the Gentiles and the fate of Israel and the gospel and grace and law. And many people hear Paul's arguments about the gospel and they come to the same questions. Who is this God? Why does he do things this way? And Paul's response starts in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, this is a quote from chapter 9 that we read just a few minutes ago. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul goes on, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? This is that question we just mentioned. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. How do you reconcile these two things? How do you bridge the tension? But Paul says in verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who was Pharaoh to answer back to God? Who are we to answer back to God? Again, we worship him as he is. Not as we think or wish or hope or argue he ought to be. So going back to those big questions. Who is this God we see in Exodus 7 through 10? He's a God of immense power. A God who stands alone as worthy of our worship above every other so-called God we try to invent. And why does God do things the way he does them? including those times when it's hard for us to understand his ways. Well, he does it to save his people. He does it to accomplish his own glory and fame. And those things are true even when we have a difficult time seeing all of it. And how are we called to respond to him? We're called to respond to him with fear, with awe, with obedience, and with worship. Now, again, you might find some of this or even all of this difficult to swallow. But as we close, I would remind you that the God we read about in the Exodus is the same God we worship as believers in Christ. This God of incredible power, this God of unmatched uniqueness is the God who has loved you. The God who has called you. The God who has saved you. The God who has forgiven you. The God that you can call your father. The God who calls you his child. The God who has assured you that you will be with him in eternity by the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Think about that. The God of Exodus is on your side. That's something to think about. That's something to praise him for. That's something to thank him for. The God who sent catastrophic judgment upon Egypt is the same God who graciously gave his only son to save us from eternal judgment. And the God who hardened Pharaoh's heart for his glory and the Israelites' salvation has softened our hearts 
your hearts, my hearts, for glory and our salvation. So may we respond to God rightly with the fear, awe, obedience, and worship and love that he deserves as the God of the Exodus, the God of the Gospels, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these passages. Even though they present difficult theological ideas, that it's a real challenge for us to wrap our minds around them. These passages also present to us incredible images, incredible records of your power and your uniqueness. And Father, even though the questions are difficult, even though we wrestle with some of these ideas, even though they fly in the face of many of the attitudes and philosophies that we consciously and subconsciously hold, I pray that we would see these images of your power, see these images of your uniqueness, see these images of your glory and your fame, and respond rightly with worship and awe and fear and obedience and love and praise. And Father, again, it is breathtaking, it is awe-inspiring to think that you, in all your power and in all your uniqueness, you are on our side because we have been set apart, called, saved by the broken body and shed blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Again, we approach you as our Father. We approach you as our Savior. We approach you as our Lord. We approach you confidently, but we do not approach you casually. So, Father, I pray that we would leave this morning into probably mundane, probably routine, probably relatively uneventful days and weeks ahead but that we would not forget that even when things seem boring in our lives, you are the God of the Exodus. You are the God who exercises power over the waters, over the sun, over the moon, over the stars, over illness and death, over the animal kingdom, over everything we see and everything we touch. And Father, again, may we give you the praise that you deserve. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.